It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I am Brother L.D. Azobra. I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Well, you know, we up here in Louisiana, and you know what time of the year it is now. It's getting hot. The spring is here. The animals are moving. There's a lot of things that will happen. But in Louisiana, it's blues season. Yes, it is. Yes, it <laughs> it's is. that time of the year. Mm-hmm. And we're going to celebrate one of Louisiana's greatest culture. is the, the music and dance and our blues in Louisiana. And we have here today our music. Business entrepreneur. We got, we got our music entrepreneur here, Mr. the Legendary guitar player, Henry Turner Jr. Welcome to Count Time. Hey, hey man, it's great to be here on Count Time. No, we, we, we great yeah. to, it's great to have you, my brother. Uh, I've been knowing Brother Turner for quite a few years. Well, we, we, we Brother Lyman, I've been following your, your legacy, though, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't I mean, know about you know, that. You was, you was way before me, man. You was rolling hard, man. So, you know, it's yeah. a pleasure to be um, on the set with you, man, and, and really being able to be of service to the community, you know. Now, now that's what you have been doing for so long, serving yeah. the community. Absolutely. And that's why we chose you as Thank our you. special guest to kick the blues season off with Blues Fest starting. Uh, then we're going to have the Soul Food Festival Absolutely. coming soon that the Henry Turner been putting on for quite a few years. And we're going to get to all this good, good information. But first, we're going to kind of start breaking down the history, the story of the Henry Turner Jr. story. What's going on with Henry Turner Jr.? Oh, man, that's a lot, Lyman. You know, my humble beginnings in Baton Rouge, man, is, uh, it, it still humbles me today. You know, it's like I started as... A kid, man, just with a big dream. I grew up right up the street from where we are now. We're at 2733 North Street. I grew up on North 36th Street. And we have to call what you call now the listening room. Absolutely. We're going to talk about the listening room. Yeah. We'll get to that, too. Yeah. But um, my dream started there, man. I, I, um, I was fortunate, man. I was born to a great family, and uh, they were supportive of our dreams, me and my sister, and uh, supported, you know, all of my ideas, man. What's, what's your sister's name? Irene. Irene. Irene That's Turner. my grandmother name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the Turner name is, is, a, is a long-standing name. It goes all the way back to, uh, you know, the Moors, right? And it's been around for a long time. If anybody researched Henry Turner, you know, they, it's, it's going to blow them away because it blew me away when I, when it I discovered It goes back to who? To, to the Moors, you know, to the Africans, you know, to the Moors. The, the great Moors. You know, the great Moors, yeah. Of North Africa. Absolutely. You know, the great guy, Hannibal. Yeah, that was a guy named Henry Turner that came over to America and claimed that he owned all of the Americas. You know? Oh, 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 oh yeah. he came before Columbus. Well, you know that cherry tree, <laughs> that cherry tree that they chopped down? Right. That was the Moore flag on a cherry pole. Oh, you know? Lord. That's what that we, we got to get to some real yeah, stuff. That's what that was. Oh, but that's, right. that's, that's the depths of the Turner okay. thing, you know, right. and how far it go back. Again, like I say, you know, it, it humbles me just the beginnings of it all, man. I always had a dream for music. I started, you know, like uh, dreaming about drumming, you know, naturally with, with uh, African roots. Your first, you know, instinct is to okay, uh, now, communicate. Well, how old were you? Did your, your dad or grandfather play music? Were you around music? Well, my father was um, an entrepreneur that had been through the gamut of things. He had owned nightclubs. He had 
been partners in nightclubs. He didn't play an instrument, uh, but he, all of the musicians of the day that uh, were, you know, like Arthur Guitar Kelly, uh, this guy, uh, uh, Woodrow Brown, they call him Snookums. All those guys were guitar players, and they all lived in these rooming houses and stuff that my father had. All right. So I was introduced to, you know, music. Before I even knew what it was, I was listening, you know. So I always had, uh, I always was armed with like a little stick with a rubber band on it, you know. I was already ready. Yeah, I was already ready. Yeah, I was already ready, you know. So when my father realized that I was serious about it, uh, him and my mom, they got me some instruments, you know. Drums was my first thing, and they got me some drums and stuff. And then a couple of my father's friends, they had, you know, situations like some of them were ministers. And my, my father was a deacon in church, and I was born. He had had a, a real, you know, early history of doing everything from him and his brothers, like, started as water boys on the railroad uh, up at Exxon when it was SO plant, stuff like that, Standard Oil. They were like water boys, you know, they carried water okay. out to the guys. So was dudes out there hustling back. Yeah, yeah, ages. yeah, okay. yeah, you know, five cent a day kind of, okay. kind of guys, you know. Okay. And then, but by the time they were like 14, 15 years old, they made their way out to Texas and started partnering up with, with some Italians and Irish. And uh, before you know it, they were like, Running gambling shops and whorehouses and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, oh, no, I'm just, they just, got this real business. Yeah, they, well, you know, <laughs> they, they, they were strong dream, farm boys. And, you okay, know, okay. And, uh, they they want to get paid. Yeah, man. yeah. So they got in the business. And, um, but by the time Prohibition and all that was over and, and starting up and stuff, they came back after bootleg, you know, it become legal and all of that and got into the club business and started some construction stuff and, you know, a bunch of different things, which led to them. Uh, you know, being property owners and, and, and being businessmen, you know, so they converted over, you know, from the illicit, you know, stuff into that. Well, I'm bo yeah, so. That's part of American uh, business. That's yeah. how they do business, that's right? It. That's how they do, still that's, do it business. It. So, uh, you know, by 1960, I'm born. My father's 57 years old, you know, yeah, Ooh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so, um, you know, all of his friends, uh, you know, in their 60s and 70s and some 50s. My first cousins are like 40 years old, you know, when I'm born. <laughs> kind of stuff. So one of my first cousins, man, um, his name was T.J. Wiggins. T.J. Wiggins was an undercover saxophone guy that had turned minister before I was born. And he had migrated over to Toledo, Ohio. But the connection was, you know, he saw his little cousin, you know, as a creative or whatever, and, and he had married uh, Slim Harpo's wife's sister. Slim Harpo's yeah. wife's sister. Yeah. So, so my aunt, my cousin Louise, his wife, was sister to Lovell, Slim Harpo's wife. So they would come down from like Ohio to visit. Man, half of the kids would come down the street because we lived right up the street from them. Where were you living at? at the on North Thirty Sixth Street. Slim okay. Harpo lived on North Thirty Sixth. I thought he he was uh, he was from, from yeah Mulatto Bend and all that. But by this time he moved into the city. You know, and uh, when I was born, he was already on uh, 36th Street, oh, right? Okay. So, um, yeah, so half of the family would stay down there and the other half would stay down the street at uh, our house, you know. So my first interactions with that kind of stuff, you know, seeing people in music and in the music business, I probably was five, six years old, you know, so it was. So you was around when the, the greats 
Well, I was exposed. Who got, who got I, I, didn't, I didn't even know who they were. Yeah. I was exposed. Yeah, so, you you know. didn't know who you was around. Right, exactly. Rafe, but I was, the Rafe and all. Yeah, people like that. Yeah. Um, when they lived on the lake in the housing project, you know, I knew the kids and stuff like that. But older kids, mm -hmm. I knew them. And uh, Rafe and uh, Louis Richard and all those people played in Slim Harpo's band. So I knew them when they, you know, when I was a baby, I knew them. You know, I didn't know them personally, but I, I knew who they were and what they were doing, you know, that kind of thing. So the history was always there. And later on, I met Tabby Thomas and a few other people, and he embraced me. Um, we had some common history. I worked for a, a Jewish guy named Eptide that had uh, several record labels, right? And uh, Tabby was there 25 years before me at the same label. So when I met Tabby Thomas and we had some conversations and so forth, and he knew, you know, how I was groomed in the music business, he embraced me. And, you know, we, so we started working together. And as his son, Chris Thomas King, said, you know, they asked me, say, man, how, how close were Tabby and Henry? He said, hey, man, they were like peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> 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 they worked together. Yeah, right? you know, okay. they worked together, you know, so. Okay. And that's the way it was, you know, but that was some of my beginnings, man. And believe me, uh, when I first got started in the music business, uh, the popular music was funk. It wasn't blues, right? So I wanted really nothing to do with blues, you know? Because, oh, okay. I mean, that was old folks' music, you right. know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of music, you know, when you, when you go to a supper or something, you know, <laughs> they had the chitlins <laughs> gone and the blues on, and, and you'd be like, man, let me see if I could talk to some of these young girls outside because I can't be in here with all this, you know, okay. you know, whatever. But I went through the whole gambit of discovering through funk, I discovered blues, right? Well, yes, all of it ties together in our well, community. Well, right? blues is like the parent religion, and jazz, funk, soul, gospel, you know, like all that stuff came from blues. I mean, even the black gospel that was played up until 10, 15 years ago, which now contemporaries in, and that's based on jazz. But prior to that, it was all based on blues. Tommy Dorsey, who they call the father of, of uh, gospel music, he was a blues singer that turned gospel. So he just brought his music over and changed the lyrics in the church. That's why all the music sounded the same, you know, for, for like 50 years, you know? Yeah, because you get the same chords. Yeah, basically, and the same melody, you just change the words. Songs like This Little Light of Mine probably was a blues song at some point, <laughs> you know, whatever. But, but you know, so um, after, after um, now, know, did you play in high school? Yeah, I played, I played, uh, played drums mostly in uh, like junior high, but I was playing instruments by the time I got to school. I was already experimenting, you know, and uh, you know, when, when music teachers see a kid that is already kind of playing and they know that there's been no real foundation or concept, they don't quite know what to do with that child, you know, but they'll drag them over into the band and, you know, show them some fundamentals and stuff like that, but they know that the kid is really creative and, and that may or may not take, you know, and that, that was my case, you know, like I was in uh, the stage band in junior high school. Well, what school was this? Capital Junior, okay. right, and, uh, but I was already playing in neighborhood bands, you know, I had a band called Backyard Funk when I was in junior high school. You had your own band? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, but I mean, remember now, I had been around people like Arthur Guitar Kelly, you know, uh, I had, I had met a lot of the blues guys that they worked with and hung out with and stuff like that, so, some Harpo lived up the street. So, you know, if on, on North 36th Street, bro, if you walked up the street, like on a Saturday afternoon, you probably hear Slim Harpo them rehearsing in the backyard. And then if you, if you walked up the street toward my end of the street, toward North Street, 
you'll hear me in my backyard trying to duplicate it with funk or soul. <laughs> you know, doing yeah, so, now, now that's you pretty know. interesting. Yeah. Now I remember when I grew up, mm. there was, you know, a lot of a lot of young people got together and played music. Of course, they figured it out. They they would right. create their own little bands. Mm -hmm. So at the time, Baton Rouge had a lot of the community bands at that time. Yeah, what I call front porch um, do, bands. Do you and remember culture. some of the band names? Yeah, well. A lot of a lot of the bands, um, like out in my area, there were individuals that played music, and they just got together and jammed. So that was no band name, okay. you know. Like my band was called Backyard Funk because I had a unique situation. I had a, a father that you know had done all the stuff when he was young, and he was in the church. And his posture was, "I can't lose you. You know, you can't go out there in the world and get lost and stuff." So. You know, the reason my band was called Backyard Funk because we couldn't leave the backyard. <laughs> that's so, you so play that's all the music that, you so want. That was, that was for yeah, real. Yeah, huh? you play all the music you want. You, <laughs> matter of fact, I, I, let, I bring some of my guys over you, 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 that I knew from the clubs and all that, and they'll come back there and show y'all whatever. But you know, you're not going out you there. You play right yeah, back yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, you're not going. Now, so as a result, our concerts were in the backyard. The neighbors would be up at the fence, you know, leaning over and stuff, you know. <laughs> oh, man, it was crazy, but it was, it was a beautiful thing because uh, it was safe, you know, and, uh, you know, we had uh, Now, who was in your group. bag? You got to name some of your bag Well, members. some of the first uh, guys that I jammed with, there was a guy by the name of Richard Griffin. He ended up in corrections, and he ended up being a captain up at Angola. He, he's passed on now, but he was one of the first guys that I jammed with because his father and mother were friends with my father. So any, any kids that played instruments or had an interest in instruments that was friends of the family, you know, it was safe to, to hang out with them and, and then, you know, do some things. And then I met uh, the Coleman family that was over on Acadian, and it was like three brothers of them that were musicians. You know, you had a bass player in the family, a guitar player, and a singer. So they, uh, they lived right across the street from a church that my father went to. My father went to... Uh, this church over on Acadian that uh, Reverend Leo Sires, not, not, not the one that's out now, his mm -hmm. father, right, was tight with my dad. And um, so then it, then it was Reverend Calvin and it was like St. Mary Baptist Church, but right across the street was where the Coleman family was. So, you know, we, we kind of connected and then they started coming around from 33rd over to North 36 and jamming in the backyard and all, <laughs> you know. It, it was yeah. truly the backyard. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no, you were leaving the backyard and saying, you know, your fans and butts. Okay. But, but at that time, mm -hmm. Baton Rouge alone had that many legends, blues legends, right here at your, at your disposal to go well, talk to, to learn how to play. Let me say this, um, the, folk, the folklore community of blues there were no legends yet. These were neighborhood guys. These were guys that played suppers, house parties. Like Arthur Guitar Kelly, I used to literally, when I was like 12, 13 years old, I used to, um, you know, I used to literally help this guy pack his stuff into a car. And um, he would drive around the block to like North 35th Street. And they had a place, they called it Miss King's. And, and this lady had a big house. And she ran a bar in her house and did suppers every day of the week, every day of the week. It was, so it was like you know, like one of those houses. And he would he would play in this well, house. Well, that's where that term "good house" come from. Huh? Yeah. Well, that's how I started. That's how I started. It started like that back in the sixties and fifties. Yeah. Good house. That's because you know black folks didn't have clubs and all that stuff. And then by the late nineteen sixties, they started having clubs and licensed clubs and stuff like that. But before that, it was all bootleg on the ground, you know. Um, so you say that those original jute joints? 
probably, it probably predates juke joints. Yeah, probably before the juke joint. The juke joint was an actual building or something, or some place that they designated. But this would just be like a house where they would just, you know, like on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or five or six days a week, they just start doing this 24-hour thing. You know, like you'd be in there, they'd be in there like gambling, drinking, cooking, you know, and it's just a 24-hour thing, man. And the musician would come in, he might come in at like three o'clock during the day. He might not leave at five or six in the morning, you know. And he's just basically playing for tips. But he walk out with a hat full of tips or whatever, you know. So, Arthur Guitar Kelly was one of those kind of guys, and he lived in a rooming house right behind where I live. So I could walk into his space, you know, and have access to his guitar and everything, you know. And if these guys were drinkers, and most of them were, when they got drunk, man, I could turn this stuff up and just. <laughs> Rock and roll. So you, you sit there waiting for him oh, to yeah, get drunk. Yeah, huh? He's gonna be drunk enough after a while. <laughs> and when you pass out, that's it. I'm turning. I'm turning so, it up. So that, that helped you not to not oh, to be yeah. a heavy drinker too. Oh yeah. Man. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, all of that. You, you got a chance to see the control and the non-control. But then, let's fast forward like um, a few years into that. I became a good enough musician, you know, by learning a little bit in school, taking a few private lessons. You know, like some of the older guys that have showed me different things, they realize, you know, like, wow, this guy's actually picking this stuff up, man. I mean, he's taking it serious. I mean, we're just getting drunk and having some fun, but this guy wants to be a musician for real, you know? So now they, um, you know, they start asking my dad, like, well, man, uh, you know, he's 15. We're going up to uh, Jackson, Jackson, Louisiana. We're playing the sticks. We'd like for him to go with us. And my dad had one rule. If my son don't come back, don't you come back either. Because <laughs> if you do come back, you're going to die. Without my son. Immediately. <laughs> you know? And they knew he meant it. You know, and, and he was one of those kind of guys, and, and they had that whole clique set up that way. And some of the guys that, um, that he knew he was tight with, like, uh, like Zach the Cat. Zach the Cat was a grave digger, man, and a piano player. Greg, Greg a grave digger and, and a, a piano, piano player. And he had a long black Cadillac with fishtail, with fishtail like Elvis, right? <laughs> and the guy would, um, he was tight with my dad, you know, because he knew my dad from back in the day. And he was almost like family, you know, because he was, he was close to us. So my dad trusted the guy. And the guy used to keep a shotgun in his trunk, 38 under the seat and a 22 in his pocket. But all of them did that. And then, and then they, had, they had what they called a six inch knife. That was legal, you know, like if the law catch you with a six inch knife, so what, you know? But if, if, it's, if it's longer than six inches, then you could go to jail. Now this came from prohibition days and all that stuff when they was running bootlegging and all that. You know, they learned all these tricks about the law. So there was a certain group of old men that um, were friends with my dad. They had this, what I call the six inch knife. And that's open, it's six inches open. So the pocket knife is like this long, you open it up, six inches, right? And it's be sharp as a razor. And they had a technique that they used to use. And the reason I'm saying this is because <clears throat> this guy, Zach the Cat, was one of those guys, it was a guy named Mr. Ed that I met over on uh, 16th Street, right by the railroad track. What Tabby's was, that was a, a railroad track, and then there was all of these Italian uh, warehouses where they had, you know, like all of the fruit stuff and all that stuff yeah. was over there on North Boulevard. And then the rest of it was an old black club strip. But on that side street that ran along the railroad track 
on one side of it was Bologna Brothers, and that was like a distillery. And that's where they made the white port wine and all that kind of shit. Well, they had distillers back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they had, they had the way Bologna Brothers was set up, like the, the train stopped on the track. They would leave a boxcar there for like probably like a week. And those guys would go out there with the jugs and all that stuff, drain them, cap them, do all that stuff right there in their little distillery. Right. And then a, then a train would come back and pick up that, that train. Right. And take it on off. And then, you know, a few days later, another one will come in. And that's how they supplied them. So Mr. Ed lived on this side of the track. And on this side of the track, the track is running here on this side of the track is Bologna Brothers. You know, so, you know, but he was one of them old bootleg kind of guys, too. Right. He had the six cents. You know? <laughs> he had the six cents. And they had a technique, man. The six cents guys, if they got into an argument or a fight, you would see them reach out and grab a guy and hug him and hold him around the neck like that, right? But see, they run this hand in the pocket and they flip that six inch open and all the way around his body. Six inches is not enough to hit an organ, but you would start bleeding and you would think you dead, right? And so all my dad partners, I'm, I'm kidding you not, man. They, they were those kind of guys, right? I call them the six inch crew, you know? Sound like they were gangsters to me. Yeah, of course. They, they had all been through the, the process. So, uh, but I, we, we call them six inches. All the kids, we like, oh, you got a six inch. Oh, yeah, he's, he's six inch. So the, the gangsters had yeah. six inches. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, they had all these other weapons, but they kept their six inch in the pocket. Zach the Cat was one of those kind of guys. So my exactly. dad camp was a graveyard digger too. At the same time, okay. he dig a grave for you. <laughs> and he had the Cadillac, kept a white towel around his neck, you know. And uh, my dad trusted me to go on gigs with him, because you know, like I say, he was a six-inch man. He had a shotgun, and trunk, and all. So you know, we were safe, you know. And if anything kicked off, Zach was gonna be on it. Zach and Hallie, he was gonna be on it, right? So we used to go up in Jackson, Jackson, Louisiana, and play. And back in the woods, they call the place the Sticks. There I got a chance to interact with another group of musicians because these were juke joiners for real. These were guys that was in the clubs, right? The other guys were neighborhood musicians and people that played in the neighborhoods. But these guys were guys that played in the clubs and drank plenty of alcohol, right? Now, this, this group of musicians was a different type of breed, you know, because their thing was drinking as much as they could, gambling a little bit, getting as many women as they could, and playing a little music to make all that access happen. So, right, so, but now here's the thing, for young musicians, 14, 15 years old that don't drink, when you're in an environment like that, two things gonna happen. First of all, these guys gonna get drunk and pass out, and you're gonna have to play. Ain't no doubt about it, you, you, you gonna play. You might play half the gig before they can get this guy revived, you know, come back and play. So, they had a guy, Named Jap, that was a guitar player in uh, Jap. yeah, and he looked like a Japanese, like a black Japanese. <laughs> so, but he was uh, he was a guy that had like a 22 in his guitar case, and he kept like <laughs> he kept like a fifth of white port wine in there, and all this in his guitar case with his guitar, right? So when he came and set up, man, you know, like he set his guitar, plug everything up. There was no tuning, and they didn't tune and all that stuff. So everything was all out of tune. But they, but they could figure it out. You know, they knew, okay. you know, they knew they, how to make it work. And then, you know, he'd take his fifth out and set it on top of his amp. So he started drinking before he started playing. And by the time he's drinking and playing, he's feeling good. He didn't got drunk. He'd go to outside to take a leak or something, you know, and, and he might not come he back not for come a back, couple hours. 
And these gigs wasn't like the gigs I grew up on, like, you know, three or four hour gigs. These would be like six, seven hour gigs. You might go up in the evening, drive up there and get out, you know, get you some pepper sausage and some crackers and stuff like that. <laughs> sit down on the hood yeah, of the that car. Was, that was your meal. Yeah, the car still hot. You sit on the hood of the car, you know, warm you, you it up let, a little bit. You learn all them techniques. Yeah, <laughs> warm it up a little bit and then start eating that, drinking some sodas, you know, and stuff. And then they go in, set up, and just start playing. Because, like, the grocery store would be in the front, and you go through a back door, and you're in the club, right? And the club was, like, mostly a dirt floor. I'm not kidding. Mostly a dirt floor. And then they might have, like, a little, like, some plywood sitting on some two-by-fours, like, for the stage or something like that, you know? And uh, you just go in there, and you do your thing. And so we would get, we would, I would get involved with those kind of gigs because, remember now, my dad was 57 when I was born. So these guys are all, like, in their 60s and 70s. These are old guys from the country, basically, right? And um, I'm rolling with them, and I'm learning all these things. By this time, you know, I mean, they still playing blues. They playing James Brown. They doing all that stuff. And uh, that, they wasn't like original music artists. They weren't writing anything. They were just playing, you know, okay. jukebox songs. <laughs> and what were, were they playing more blues or James Brown? Those that which, well, which mostly song? mostly blues. You know, they might roll in like there. Bobby, Bobby Bland, BB King. Nah, they, they might roll in there and do something like, the things I used to do, Lord, I don't do no more. Don't, 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 don't. You know, that kind of stuff. They'll roll in there and do something like that, play those kind of songs, but they, they wasn't playing no commercial blues tunes like a Bobby Bland or BB King. You know, they might, like, sooner or later, they would get around to playing Sweet 16 or something like that by BB King. What was really cool in an environment like that, man, it's like, and keep in mind, I'm a teenager. In those days, there was no law about being 18 or 21 and all that. If, if you came into an environment like that with an adult, you was just in there. Right. You know, I mean, everybody walk in together. Is and if, if they let you drink, if, they, if if the adult let you drink, you can just drink too. You know, but if not, then you know, if you say, "Well, I don't drink," okay, we're well, fine. That's that's okay. Get get him a soda or whatever he wants. You know, that kind of thing. So most of these these musicians was heavy drinkers. Oh yeah, they, they were drinkers and smokers. You know, basically a lot of tobacco, a lot of alcohol. But now watch the, watch the culture, how it works. So me and my little crew, I might have brought like a bass player with me and a drummer. You know, like two of the guys from my backyard funk band. And we all rolled up with okay. Zach the Cat. The rest of the guys drive themselves up in their car, you know, so we all drive up in the Cadillac and all that. And uh, we'd be in the club, we spotted some young people in the club. All the young people were sitting around and we just kind of looking at each other, you know, like everybody 15, 16 years old, guys and girls in the club. And then there's the, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 year olds drinking and, you know, doing their thing and all that stuff. And we just sitting there kind of vibing with them, but we, we really, people watching, you know, because this is, this is our way of learning about the community and how they do this stuff and whatever. So sooner or later though, when these musicians get drunk, and it's over with for them. Oh, the backyard kick in. Yeah, and then, then Zach the Cat said, hey, hey, Junior, come on, come on, man. Come on, bring your boy. Quick, quick, bring him. So we roll up, and we get out. We, we take our instruments out, which was tuned. You know, our stuff was tuned. And we plug into the amps, drummer take drumsticks, and we start playing. But we might play, like, a, a song like I Believe in Miracles, you know. But we might, we might only know half of the song. 
Like we might act know we might just know don't 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 yeah and we were playing the whole time right so and then a guy you know our singer he might just say I believe in miracles you know where you from you sexy thing and he started singing that over and over nothing else but it's all good though but we modern we modern we up to date so what's gonna happen the young people gonna respond they hit the dance floor boom. The dance floor is solid, it's like the old people sitting back, they drunk now, you know, they've been in a couple hours, they're leaning back. Oh, get it, baby, get it. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Ooh, they playing just like the radio, Lord, have mercy. You know, and, and, and you're in the, now you're in the juke joint, right? And it's on, bro, I mean, it's on. And man, one time we played one song so long, this old lady came up to the stage, she said, baby, look. Hold up, babies, look, listen, listen, listen to mama, baby. This sound good, I love it. Do y'all know any other song? I, this, you done played this one for an hour and a half. You, you, this has been an hour and a half now. Now this is enough, baby, this is enough. Right? <laughs> you know, you experience all that kind of stuff. You know? I mean, but this is the beginning, man, you know? See, you get so excited when the people rolling, you know, you just don't stop. You know, and, and yeah, you hit that adrenaline rush, you know, and, and, and you see the young girls moving and all that stuff. So, so y'all created you disco. Like, yeah, <laughs> man. Yeah, you know, and we on it. We on it, bro. We just right there, just rolling hard as we can. And uh, but those days are precious to me, man, because those were the things that taught us about the pulse of music, the emotions of the the fans, the dynamics between the demographics and the audience. You know, because the older people. It was cute to them. It wasn't the music of their day, right? But they enjoyed the fact that we were so happy doing it, and then their nieces and nephews and sons and daughters was enjoying it, right? So it was, it was, it was like a community thing. Like, hey, it's their turn. Let them have it, you know? And, and we throw it out. But then, so that progressed into a lot of those guys with the alcohol issues, you know? For instance, cirrhosis, you know? Uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, strokes, heart attacks. Because when you're not eating a proper diet, when you are going through all of the bad diet, you know, symptoms and all that stuff, in those days, there was no preventive measures. You know, right, people just right. functioned until they couldn't anymore. They would just hope for the best, just hope that, you know, the guy got better or, or whatever. And if he didn't, he passed on, put the next guy in the slot and keep going. So. As that era phased out, what I call the elitist of the era, like your Tabby Thomas, your Ray Neal, you know, like contrary to what people believed about Tabby Thomas, Tabby was a pretty conscious guy, right? Like Tabby told me one time, he said, look, man, don't tell nobody, but I went to Leland College. <laughs> you know? oh, oh, oh. He said, I went to Leland College. I can read that right, bro. You know what I'm saying? So, well, Leland College right there in Baker, yeah, right? There, yeah, yeah, it was a black there. university. Yeah. Right, so in other words, what he was saying was, I lead people to believe that I'm just an old, ignorant blues guy. But, you know, if I tell them what I, who I really am, they, they're not going to accept me, right? Mm -hmm. But he would, he would tell me stuff like that. And, uh, you know, so when that facet took over the blues, and started working it, they made it a little bit more upscale. You know, they made it so the demographics could mesh into each other. So guys like Tappy Thomas, when they found out that we had bands like Crystal Band and stuff like that out functioning, they, was, they would look at us and say, hey man, why don't you take a night at the club? 
Oh, he offered that to you. Yeah. Why don't you take a night at the club? Now remember, you're talking to a people that's dealing with a music era that's dying. They know it's dying. They've inherited some people, you know, that has revitalized the music. Like when E. Rodney Jones got to town, people like Matt Martin, E. Rodney Jones, uh, even back as far as Diggy Do. These people came in from other areas, brought an influx of new blues artists with them. Like people like E. Rodney Jones, he brought California artists, he brought Chicago artists. I didn't know E. Rodney Jones was a musician. He did the, the radio thing. On he was w actually a musician. The XOK. He was a poet, he was a musician. The bluesologist. Mm -hmm. e. That's right, Jones. but see, E. Rodney was an interesting uh, phenomenon because he was actually an Arkansas guy. He came out of Little Rock, like uh, Sonny D, E. Rodney Jones, and a bunch of those guys that came out of those areas. The South was kind of like their playground, but they had all migrated up to Chicago. They went up there when Little Chess had chess records and all of that. And they went from being uh, radio DJs and musicians to being in the record business. And then guys like uh, Sonny D migrated down to Memphis and went over to Stax Records and became you know, um, a national record promotion man for Al Bell and that crew. And then people like E. Rodney Jones, Don Cornelius, migrated out to California, right, and started a whole another thing out there because Don Cornelius was a news director at WVON, worked for E. Rodney Jones. You know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, but a lot of this history is brothers coming out of the South and moving around, you know, and doing things. When E. Rodney came back to the South, everybody was thinking, where did he come from? Where he came from Chicago, came from California? Well, he had came from Little Rock, Arkansas, but he had made his way all around the country and came back. Right, and um, when he came back, he brought all the connections and all the people with him. I mean, he was, you know, friends with people like Barry White. He could get Barry White on the phone and talk to him. You know, he was friends with Johnny Teller. He called him Pete. You know, he could get he could get Johnny Teller on the phone. You know, Bobby Blue Bland. Them was all his running partners from Chicago. He could call him up. You know, uh, Tyrone Davis, whoever. So you he, know, he rather would make it happen. Yeah, well, he was the guy that uh, Buddy Stewart and uh, a few other people brought to town because they knew that that would bring a blues hub. And blues was dying in Baton Rouge because funk had took over, disco, all that kind of stuff. And then hip hop, you know, the onset of rap was starting, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, all the way back to the Sugar Hill Gang, you know, and all that. So these guys were protecting their interests and in putting a powerhouse together so they could preserve a market for themselves, you know, because they were bluesers, they were the blues guys. That era, ushered in people like myself, uh, Chris Thomas King, and a bunch of other people to, to uh, reconnect with blues. Okay, now you uh, playing funk music at the right. time. Mm -hmm. But but now with the with the, the influx of new people coming in, like the E. Rodney Jones. Right. And and the bluesmen, like the, uh, like you say, uh, Buddy Stewart. Right. Uh, these guys, they didn't want the, the, the- They were trying to keep their music alive. Because they, they, they need to be playing, mm -hmm. this is what right. they do. Yeah. And so they had to figure out how to how a new way to bring life to this their new music. So that's what they. So that's how where even where uh, uh, Thomas, uh, mm -hmm. where, Tabby. Where, Tabby Thomas, mm -hmm. where he opened up the blues shop off of uh, North, yeah, North blues Boulevard. Box. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all that was part of that that process. Absolutely, they were trying to see. It, they ran out of places to play because clubs were converting over, and they were saying, "No, nah, we don't we don't do that no more. That's just all the old stuff, you know. Now nah, we ain't into it." 
you know, whatever. So they had they had to start opening their own clubs. Like Ray Fennell opened the club, Tabby opened the club, E. Rodney had a club, oh. Buddy Stewart had a club. You know, everybody had their own club. So that that's what kind of forced them to open up their own Absolutely. club. Absolutely, you create the environment where they that's can it. play it. That's it. That's it. To have a place to work. And then, you know, um, the, the other big part of the picture was to bring in a guy like E. Rodney Jones and get him on the radio. Now you had a motivator, a stimulator of the music on the radio. Because right, he right. played blues. He, That's uh, all he just, played. Just to, just to call himself the bluesologist. That's all he played. You know, right. he, he created a whole new energy around blues in his, his time. He made Baton Rouge a blues town. Right. And, he, he converted it. And, and he made the names like the Ray Fennells. No, 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 no. Those names are already made. No, they, the name was already made. But but watch this. But watch this. Young people didn't know. But watch this. Those names were now migrated overseas into the UK. Oh, just like man. with uh, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf. Buddy Guy. Uh, yeah, all those guys. They were all big in Europe now, but looked at as a dinosaur in America. All right. So that's what was happening at that point. Now, remember, a guy like E. Rodney Jones worked for 20th Century Fox Records, right? They made him pre black president of 20th Century Fox Records. I mean, he was, every label had a black record label head, right? So if it was Capitol Records, they had a black record label head, you know, like they had the white label, and then they had the black division, right? Uh, MJJ Production was the black division of Sony Records. People like... Um, if I can think of some of these names, um, Walter Moorhead from New Orleans was one of the guys that worked for Atlantic Records. And he was like a, a national promotional man, but he, was a, he worked on the A&R staff. He did a lot of different things. And he, he was down here in the mix doing stuff. E. Rodney Jones coming from 20th Century Fox, he's down here in the mix on the radio. He was friends with Frankie Crocker out of New York, who's a legendary jock. He's friends with Don Cornelius. He's friends with all these different other people. So the power base just got so strong and concentrated right there that they could do a lot. You know, um, you know, you had guys from New Orleans that had went on to like uh, work for like uh, MCA Records and then eventually become the black president head of MCA. So now you got power based brothers out of the South that are out on the West Coast and over on the East Coast running something. Right, with budgets of up to ten, fifteen million dollars. You know, I heard a conversation one time between Gerald Busby and Scott Lewis, right in my living room. They was on the phone. The guy tells Scott, you know, because he knew him, and they they had several different types of relationships. Some of it illegal, some of it legal. And the guy says to Scott, he said, "Man, we're looking for a black group that we could get." some young brothers from down south. It could be Baton Rouge, New Orleans, or Shreveport. It doesn't matter. The budget goes up to $2 million if you get the right group from me. He said, but if you embarrass me, a bunch of people are going to disappear because we, we're, not playing with, we're not playing chess. We're playing checkers. No, we ain't playing know? checkers. We're playing no, checkers. No, 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 no. He we're said, we're not playing chess. chess. We're playing checkers. In other words, we, oh, move, we moving people out of the way. Oh, we moving people out right We ain't trying to do no, okay. you know. We, we, <laughs> we ain't no strategy. No, no, no. no. This is just this strong arm. You know, okay, we coming straight down the board. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, what it was, what it was, what it was letting them know is that the people have to be solid or, you know, it, it would be negative for everybody. You know what I'm saying? So that was a, a, a you know, that era, man, was, was a real serious era. And it, it was one of those eras 
where um, young people like myself grew up in the music business all of a sudden. You know, we had come from the juke joint, dirt, dirt floor, from uh, riding the old Cadillac with Zach to the sophisticated blues man, you know, that had come from Chicago, L.A., New York, had been a federal penitentiary, knew the rules and the do's and the don'ts, and telling you, look, man, you know, let's be, just be clear. I understand what you're trying to do, but let me share a story with you. It might say something to you like, look, if you work in 10 Chitlin Circuit clubs and you making $200 a gig, there's five of you in the band, we already, we already know how much you make a week if you split the money e evenly. We know how much you make a week. He said, now you're not going to be able to go in, in front of a federal judge driving a brand new Mercedes talking about I work the, the, the Chitlin Circuit. Because he's going to say, well, we're looking at your income tax statement. This car here, you couldn't have purchased with that. So what do you really do? They would have conversations with us like that and say, so don't fantasize this. This is real. You're in the music business. You know, this, this is the time where you have to really uh, put all your little childish things down and, you know, talk like men, act like men, and live like real people if you want to do this. You know, so all of a sudden, entrepreneurship is introduced. Now remember, I came from a family of entrepreneurs, so I couldn't wait to practice. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, I couldn't wait. But my family was so old, you know, like my dad told me, he said, man, if you was born 30 years younger, we could have helped make you a millionaire because you, you got the brain for it. You know, he said, but, you know, right now, man, we, you know, we barely able to survive ourselves, you know, so the best thing we could do is prop you up and help you a little bit, but <laughs> reality, that's all. That's all, that's all we can do, you know. I mean, you know, they gave us the things we needed, like a house, you know, support. You know, we had all that and gave us some good contacts and some people to work with. You know, we had great lawyers and stuff like that. So, you know, all of that, you know, was um, an interesting, you know, beginning, though, for the music business. Okay, but now, now you went from funk right. to blues. Now, how did that transition come about? Well, again, if, you, if you're interacting with all these blues people, you know the culture, you know the language, you know the history, and you see what they're trying to do in terms of preservation, and, and they're trying to make the culture last and mix it in with everything they can, just like any other brand of music. Um, I was having conversations with people like uh, Tabby Thomas, Buddy Stewart, and they were saying stuff like, look, man, you guys are doing great. You know, funk music is, is, is happening. And, um, you know, it has a future. But just like blues, they're going to phase you out. And when they do, you guys are going to have to band together, come together, and do something. And you see what we happen to do. Right, and I'm like, yeah, I can see that, you know, and they would explain it. They would break it down for you, you know, like, like Buddy Stewart told me, he said, look, man, I can teach you the game. I can show you how to put some money in your pocket. He said, but let's be clear. I can't sponsor a flea a wrestling jacket. Okay? <laughs> in other words, I ain't giving you no money. <laughs> I ain't giving you no money, but I'll teach you how this game go and I'll help you get some money. You know, he said, now, I got a little black book. I got names in there. You call some of them, tell them I told you to call them, they get, get you some money. But, you know, you know, he said, man, look, he said, this pocket here, I know you be looking at it because it's full of $100 bills. He said, but that's for Miss Stewart, my wife. Yeah, he said, now, this pocket here, 20s and 10s, he said, this is for my daughter. 
because she, she's my legacy. She's going to take over. He said, now I got fives and ones over here. My children that won't listen, I give them that. We have a little money to play around with. But he said, now this other pocket here, I got a few dollars in. That's basically my drinking money. And you're not going to get that. <laughs> you know I mean, that's the way he used to talk to us, you know. You're on your own. Well, not necessarily on your own, but you're not going to get any money out of us. Yeah, I forgot you. Right. And we'll help you get some money because we want to teach you how to get your own. We don't want to give you a fish. We want to teach you how to fish, you know, that kind of thing. That was even more powerful. Yeah. And that's what they were doing. And, and they would choose the people that they would do these things with. And uh, I was one of those persons that they chose because they felt comfortable with me, you know. And, I used to do stuff like uh, take Buddy Stewart over to uh, LSU to the radio station, you know, because the white kids were fascinated with black music and they loved black music, right? <clears throat> so they would be looking for black music. They'd be all over town scouring record shops and different stuff. And I would tell them, I say, hey, man, why don't you go by uh, the rock shop on Acadian, you know, because I, you know, I was over there playing fraternities and all that stuff. They would go over there, buy some music, you know, whatever. And then I would take him and take him over to the radio station have him bring some music with him, let him DJ a little bit for him, and then, you know, talk to him about the music and the history. They would fall in love with him, you know, because he's a historian, okay. you know. Okay. And then, so they run through there and spend some money. So, you know, everybody was helping everybody. You know, that's how the, that's how the culture stayed alive, you know, everybody helping everybody. But, um, but these men knew their music. They knew the history of it. They oh could yeah, talk about it. Absolutely. They weren't just playing it. They, they, yeah. they can articulate what they was doing. Well, first of all, the era in which we were talking about, most of them were influential in the era. And uh, they had their, um, see what most people don't realize about the South, uh, the Southern states have always been test ground for new music, right? So if a major label in California had a song that they thought was really cool and it was an ethnic black song, remember now you got an Ernest Singleton you know, from New Orleans, that's the head of your black record division. And he knows that down south is where you can test the music because people are not going to say, oh, I never heard that before. They're just going to say, ooh, I like that. Well, that sounds good. See how California, New York, you play something, they'll be able to be like, eh, well, who is that? You know, no, I don't really know who that is, you know, whatever. And, but so once you tested it down south, then you know if the music is going to withstand the test of time or not. And then you, merge it on around the country, if it'll fit. Sometimes the test market become the market, and that's what happened. It blew up. And these guys were the intricate guys behind the music. Like, a Buddy Stewart would take, like, an artist like uh, Buddy Ace, or either, um, like, uh, you know, Guitar Shorty, or somebody like that, and they would buy, like, 25 dates on the artist at one time, because the dates might not be no more than three, four hundred dollars, might be five. They will buy the dates. Now, what, what, what do you mean by buy the dates? Well, they would call a record company. If they heard a record they really like, and they knew, I'm gonna promote it in my record shop, I'm gonna give it to Buddha Man in Houston, he gonna promote it in his record shop. I'm gonna get a record to E. Rodney Jones, he gonna play it on the radio. I'm gonna give it to George Fisher and Opelousas, he gonna play it. I'm gonna give it to the uh, guy, Sweet Pop-Up in Shreveport, I'm gonna get him to play it. And we are gonna lock this area down, and then we are gonna bring in this guy and we're going to tour them around the whole area, right? Mm -hmm. So to keep from any competition, you just buy up like 25 dates, right? So you call up there and you tell a guy, hey, man, send me $1,000. Tell you, Rodney Jones, man, give me $1,500. Tell another guy, give me, give, me, uh, give, me, give me $500. Tell another, you know, so everybody's invested, right? So now they get the records. 
they start playing it, they get it popular, right? And then here come the new guy. So, you know, like, okay. like Buddy Ace, for example, okay. pouring water on the drowning man. I was writing Buddy, Buddy Stewart's Rock Shop the day Buddy Stewart was cutting the deal. You know, he, he talked to Malico Records and he said, uh, he said, man, look, give me 12 dates on him and 500 records. And I'll, pop, I'll break it for you. He said, we just want the first, you know, 12 dates. You know, and then after that, we'll sell dates for you or you sell them yourself. You know, I mean, that's the kind of stuff they used to do, man, because they had the network together. When you put all these players together, they had the regional uh -huh. area. They had the regional area, man. But that, I was just call, calling some of the names and like Hughes from Houston down to Shreveport up to New Orleans. But they had the whole regional area locked because, you know, I mean, you got Bobby, uh, you know, you got a Walter Moorhead out of New Orleans working for Atlantic Records. You know, he, they, they got a black record division. They had Ray Charles and everybody over there. Right. You got Ernest Singleton out there at uh, MCA Records or something like that, the Capitol, one of them. And he's got his whole thing that he's doing, and he's got all of these artists that they're trying to break. And then you got, you know, other artists that's doing their thing, right, on all these other different labels. So the whole scenario is, uh, you know, is, is the kind of thing where you have these networks. Now, they actually ended up naming the network, uh, they ended up naming the, the network, uh, YBPC, Young Black Programmers Coalition, with guys like E. Rodney Jones at the head, and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so, so these guys was really doing big things. Oh, yeah, this, this was the network. This was the real so, stuff. So E. Rodney Jones basically revitalized the blues. Couldn't do it by himself, but he had probably a good 50 to 100 people help him do it, you know. And, uh, but the, the people who spearheaded those kind of things were like your Buddy Stewart's, um, you know, uh, some of the guys out of New Orleans. Like, let me give you an example. E. Rodney Jones did not come to Baton Rouge originally when he came down south. He was supposed to be at WYLD in New Orleans. But he went down to WYLD and he stayed there for a couple of years. And uh, well, he might not stay that long. He might stay less than a year. And he said, man, I can't deal with this, man. These, these niggas crazy down here, man. He's like, man, I'd be to kill every, everybody in New Orleans that I could kill. So, you know, he, uh, Buddy Stewart and him went down and got him and brought him to Baton Rouge. And they put him on uh, WXOK, Baton Rouge. They, actually, they put him on WTKL first. Right? And that's a whole other story. They, 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 they did some stuff over there, man. It was so scandalous. You know, uh, I had an Italian dude come to me and he said, look, man. He said, I know you know some of these guys because I've seen you talking to them and I know you talk talking. He said, I'm one of the radio station owners. I got a couple other people. He said, look. If you go over there and talk to these guys, talk to the people you know. You say, I don't want to know, you know who you talk to. But if they leave within 48 hours, there won't be no charges pressed. You know, and uh, we won't press no charges. And we, won't, we won't indict them or anything like that. But if they stay, everything's on the table. He said, because we got all the goods. We know about all the furs, the diamonds, the cars they're trading for, you know, for radio ad time. Blah, blah, blah. And that's how, that's how you Rodney Jones got to WXOK. <laughs> because we went over there and told him, you know, man, they, you know, the Italians on to y'all, man. They coming to get you. He said, "What well, you got? Forty-eight hours if you leave." They like, you know. He said, "You got to explain that, dog." Well, you don't want to explain that because that ain't, you know, it's just it, it is what it is. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, just every every culture has its own network, right? And see what that was. Um, WTKL was owned by this Italian network, right? And uh, WXOK was a whole different set of Jews, right? Those, 
So it, it was the, the XOK network was something totally different. The, the Italian network that was over there, I was friendly with them along with a couple other artists because I knew some of the players, right? And we had been doing some business together. So they knew that I knew them. So they was like, you know, we'll give you the opportunity to go over and get your people out. If you, Put them on notice. Yeah, get them out. They got to come out because if they don't come out, they'll tell you what's going to happen. So, I mean, I, you know, he, he thanked me for that. And as a result, <laughs> man, he always played my music on the radio. He thanked you for that. And always played my music on the radio. Always. Always. Well, look, that, that, that's still part, part, a portion is just missing. It's not, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you understand what I'm not saying. <laughs> you know? and, I'm not, and I'm not going to say it. You know? But that was an interesting time. But see, we was talking about the blues connection, though, and how it worked and the kind of things that was going on at that time. Now, just like Guy Brody. Guy Brody was somebody brought into town by E. Rodney Jones, right? Because that was the next tier, the next generation. He wasn't a blues man. They brought him in to usher that next generation in, right? And Guy Brody came from Baltimore. His mother was a radio DJ who they said was friendly with E. Rodney Jones, and the guy might have been E. Rodney's son. That was just a rumor. Now. Oh, okay. I couldn't yeah, verify yeah. that. I didn't try. Yeah, right, yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, a lot of that was happening too, where they was bringing in people for certain specific jobs to do certain things. So behind the scenes. Oh, well, a lot of maneuvering. A whole lot of yeah, maneuvering. a lot of maneuvering. But all that was in that era we talking about, that blues Because era. somebody, different groups wanted to be in charge. Well, they wanted to influence the market, yeah, we'll yeah. say that. Influence the yeah. market, that's a good yeah, way to because they were not in charge. Yeah, okay, they wanted yeah, to influence the market. Let's be honest, you know, they had to get their money from the Jews or the Italians or the Irish, you know, people. So that's where the real money came from. So that that probably leads to the conversation, I mean, this conversation where I'm, a lot of your big artists, you know, like the Whitney Houston, you know, even Michael Jackson, you know, Prince, they died of Elvis Presley, of drugs, overdose. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Incidental by design. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say. Well, we, well, I mean, how do we know? You know what no, I mean? We have no I clue. mean, you know, uh, like, like, like the doctor said, uh, man, I left the room. I think Michael increase the dose itself on the propofol because, you know, he, he knew how to do it. <laughs> you know, he said, y'all know I was on the phone with, with the chick. I was talking to my girl. I came back, he was dead. Tried to save him, it was too late. Because you know, at a certain age and stage, they're worth more dead than alive. Well, in Michael's case, now, he had done some things that he had made some enemies. You know, I mean, first of all, the Sonic? I mean, not Sonic. What is Sonic? 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 But, but you, yeah, you got to keep in mind that, um, you know, some of the things that, that people don't really realize about um, show business is that the money has to come from somewhere to finance superstars, right? And everybody approaches it differently. Now, when, in, my, in Michael's case, when he started touring Japan, the Sony family, embraced him. And then you have to ask yourself, who is the Sony family in Japan? Okay. You do the research on that, you'll find out who they are and what they're about. Well, right? Can you give us a little brief history? Well, I mean, they're, let's, let's just say they're an old established family and uh, they have soldiers and money, you know, and, and uh, they have all kind of enterprises and brands and, and uh, you know, things that they, that they sell, you know what I'm saying? So they're uh, manufacturers, they're distributors, they're uh, 
you know, they're in, they're in every aspect of uh, supply and demand you can imagine, right? So when Michael fr befriended the Sony family, he was on Epic CBS Records. You remember when they left Motown, he went to Epic, right? Epic was owned by CBS. Who was CBS? CBS was a broadcasting network that had a record label and a publishing company. And uh, they had people like Elizabeth Taylor. They had um, uh, Vincent Price. They had a little bit of everybody with them, you know, in their networks. And Michael was, um, you know, networked in tight with these people. So at one point, um, Sony made an offer to CBS that they couldn't refuse, right? So they sold Epic CBS, the whole thing, to Sony, along with Michael Jackson, his whole catalog and everything. But now, some people say Michael Jackson influenced the deal and had the Sonys to buy it out because of the racism and the stuff that was going on inside of CBS Records in the United States. And the Sonys wasn't really down with all that racism. So he would rather be working for somebody like that or be partners with somebody like that. Because of the Sony family being who they are and CBS family being who they are, they had to figure out an applicable, a applicable deal, something that would work. Now, Michael Jackson implied before he died that Tommy Mottola, right, was a label boss, right? And he was also not just a label boss, he was a mafia boss as well. Then they got another group of people that say that the manager that Michael Jackson had, Frank DeLeo, was a capo for the Gotti family, right? And then there were rumors prior to Gotti and DeLeo taking over the Michael Jackson contract for management. There was another rumor that another group of mobsters had put a hit out on Michael Jackson. But the Gotti family and their capos and lieutenants squashed the hit. Right, and took over management. So you have all these particular rumors about all of this stuff that was happening around Michael Jackson. Some of the players that I knew in the game said that Michael Jackson is the secret vice president of Sony Records, man. Did you know that? I said, well, I know you got his little label, MJJ Productions, you know, and you got his little label over there and all that at Sony, but no, I don't believe that. Well, before Michael Jackson died, he told you, I own 52% of the Sony catalog. Yeah, that's what I was saying. He said he, he, he was buying Sony. He say buying. He bought, he bought it. I mean, he purchased He owned 52% of the catalog. He owned the Beatles catalog outright. Elvis Presley's? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, did, he wasn't playing. He was a businessman. <laughs> those those, so, those so, types so, of things that's this, 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 happening out there, Lyman, so, You know what I mean? So, so you leaving that just open? So you, so you well, no, we we just talking about some of the rumors <laughs> and some of the things that people say. Yeah, what and then and right. then we we talk about some of the things that Michael yeah, said, yeah. right? And, and things that that did happen, right? Or uh, things that Michael said was true that, that he experienced. That you know, like for instance, 
You know, like one of the things, like somebody told me, like, um, well, me and, me and one of my partners was driving across the country, was, was touring, and uh, we used to listen to Coast to Coast at night, religiously. Gotcha. Was, I love Coast to yeah, Coast. Yeah, Coast to Coast was one of the shows yeah. because we thought it was a, a lot of insight. Uh, yeah, we thought it was a true news source, right? And one night, man, we driving, uh, coming through Utah, we headed over to uh, Idaho, and um, we hear this thing. The guy said, well, I got some very special guests on Coast to Coast tonight. And he said, uh, you're not going to believe who's here with us. He says, Michael Jackson and Al Sharpton. Right? <laughs> so I'm like, Michael Jackson and Al Sharpton? That's a combination. On Coast to Coast? What are you doing? <laughs> Michael Jackson on TV on Coast to Coast? You know, so I'm riding and I'm listening. So uh, Al Sharpton said, he said, um, he said, well, man, you know, he said, uh, he said, thanks for having us here on Coast to Coast. He said, and I'm on here with Michael because, you know, Michael feels like it's important to, um, you know, to say these things before such time he doesn't have the opportunity to say them with, without uh, malice or, or without people looking at it in some type of uh, political way. And uh, so the guy says, well, Coast to Coast is the place where you want to say stuff like that. What, what are you saying? What, what is it you want to say, Michael? He said, well, I just wanted to tell, you know, some national news source about what's about to happen. And I want you to know, first of all, that I'm totally aware of what's going on. And uh, I plan to fight this with everything I have, every dollar I got, every bit of influence I have. And I'm never going to give up or give in on this. He said, Tommy Matola is the devil. So I opened it. He said, Tommy Matola is the devil. He said, now, you may not understand what I'm saying unless you understand who Tommy Matola is. Do some research. It's not hard to understand who he is or what he does. He said, but what he has told me is that he's going to break me. He's going to make me spend all my money. He's going to try to influence people not to believe in me, trust me, you know, work with me. He's even going to... Um, do some trumped up charges and some allegations and stuff that I'll have to fight. So I won't have time to create or do nothing else. Only thing I'll be able to do is fight for my freedom. He already told me that. He said the reason that he's mad with me is because um, he said I, I did some things that they were not expecting. I made some business moves with me and some of my partners and I've taken control of some things that, that I needed, you know, and uh, they thought I was just dancing and singing, but they found out that I was actually doing some real business, and they're not happy with me. He said, but see, it's okay because I'm not happy with them either, and I don't like what they're doing, you know, so, you know, um, you know, he said, now, when you see the allegations, he said, you might, it might come from any direction. I don't know what it's going to be, but just know that um, I'm planning to fight them. And I have the revenues and the resources to fight them. And I'm going to do it. Right? And that was the gist of the conversation. So, you know, a year later, you know, we're in the middle of the first child, you know, the child molestation charge and all that. And I was sitting back saying, wow. You've heard that conversation yeah, a year before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This cat, you know, he, he said this. You know, yeah, he said all this is going to be happening, right? So then I hear a conversation where they said, J.P. Morgan, and Chase, the, the, the major banks, yeah, refused to give him a, uh, 
alone against his his catalog. You know, he had he has a major catalog, and uh, they said that they refused it on the grounds of him being uh, accused child molester, and they, they won't be associated with anybody like that. And they were afraid that all their other banking partners and their customers might abandon them if they support him. You know, so I was like, wow. What's really going yeah. on? So now, one of my sources told me, he said, with people like this that have that kind of power, you know, one or two things happen. They wait until they make some mistakes or some, 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 uh, some faulty moves, and then they pressure them into a point where they have to go into submission. And when they go into submission, then they put them into paranoia, and they normally take themselves out because you can't kill them because they're a martyr. You don't want to do that. You know, so if you listen to Michael Jackson's bodyguards and their last interviews about Michael Jackson, they said he was extremely paranoid. Um, he said that people were trying to kill him. He was afraid to eat, afraid to drink, water even, whatever, because he felt like somebody might, you know, knock him off. Um, Dick Gregory had a... Um, interview about Michael Jackson where he did an intervention for the family. He went up and uh, talked to Michael. Michael talked to him. Michael told him he was scared to eat or drink anything. He was almost scared to sleep. And uh, he had been using sleep aids to sleep, this, that, and the other, all based on um, some information that he had that Tommy Matola was going to have him killed. Right? Yeah. So Dick Gregory took him up to Northern California without notice to a hospital that's some, a black hospital, some friends of his. They checked Michael out and they said, the only thing that's wrong with Michael Jackson is that uh, he's depressed and has some, uh, some mental uh, illness going on right now. They said, and we believe that it's all based on paranoia, schizophrenia, uh, induced by fear. So, you know? so this music did this... Any business, not just I mean, business. any business, yeah. right? Okay, but this is just high-profile business. This is, yeah, you know, you, know, you get. Yeah. This is interesting. I mean, but yeah. you got some information. You got some insight. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. a lot of information floating about music industry. You know, yeah. a lot of it. Now, <clears throat> man, you I, I can talk to you for a couple more days just on on these matters, but we're gonna we over here at what twenty-seven thirty-three North. North mm -hmm. Street yeah. in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, at the Henry Turner Listening Room. Right. And I appreciate you having us here today. It's really a wonderful place to be at. Now, why did you create this listening room? Because I, you know I don't see no alcohol back there. I don't see no. No, there's, there's no alcohol here. This this is strictly uh, uh, you know like a mirage. This is like you know it's like it's like you know, is, there, is this a club? I don't know. Is it? <laughs> But can I get a drink? I, I don't think you can unless you drink unless you drink a non-alcohol beverage, you know, whatever. And then occasionally we might do a special event party where we bring alcohol in and do a little celebration, libation, stuff like that. So you give no reason to come mess with you, did you? No, well, we yeah, we don't need that to to function. You know, I mean, we don't need to bring in, uh, you know, a mob that you know that poisons the community in order to get paid. We don't we don't need that because we selling knowledge and. You know, information and things like that. We we're not selling alcohol. That's not, we're not alcohol sales. That's not what we do. <laughs> you know, it's straight up. This is not what we do. So this way, you what you call that? Uh, like the backyard funk. You just come out. Everybody come here, 
play, participate. That's it. And so go you, home. So you kept that same philosophy. Yeah, well, you, I, you you know, I am my father's day. child. You know what I mean? I believe that the reason he, he uh, put those um, precautionary things in place is because he wanted a safe environment. And he knew that if you go out and bring all that back, then you're going to have a problem. Or if you go out and hang out in it, you know, you're going to start thinking that that's normal, you know, whatever. I mean, I don't by all means con uh, condemn anybody to do whatever they do. This particular room is about music, heritage, you know. Uh, culture. Yeah, yeah, culture, legacy, yeah. things of that nature. And we, we have a 501c3. We, um, oh, it's a nonprofit. Yeah, okay. we, we go for, um, you know, cultural grants and we try to take this and uh, utilize it for a, uh, a learning experience for the community. You know, almost like, uh, you know, what I would call an incubator or, you know, a talent development center. You know, so we have a lot of new talent that we put on stage. We have a lot of old talent that mixed with new talent. And then we have a lot of creators here, you know, like film, music, you know, uh, producing, writers, things of that nature. That's, that's kind of what we use the room for, you know, like, and like, the room to me is more of a, a studio. It's a place where you create and capture, you know, create and capture. And that's what we do with it, you know. And uh, the rest of it, you know, is, um, you know, network. You know, we use it to network. We're like, for instance, last night we had uh, uh, an act here from New York, Cupid and the Cowboy. It was uh, African-American Creole young lady from New York, from the Bronx. And uh, an older white gentleman that was uh, a country artist that merged with this pop, eclectic, you know, folk type black artist. And uh, we host stuff like that all the time where people are coming from different markets and bringing that to this market. Now, what about the, <clears throat> you right here in the community uh, where you used to call this around Easy Town somewhere mm -hmm. right Yeah, here. absolutely. This is. And where. We don't see our young men and women into mu music the way it was when we was younger. Is, that a, is there a way you can figure out how to pull them in or get them? Those, like, like when I got here early, had a young man, a young boy, I guess six, seven years old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He saw those drums, he jumped on those drums, yeah. started beating. And you can see the energy and the life that came to him. Mm -hmm. And we know that that's what happened if a young child Interacts. It, yeah, interacts and just start seeing something like me. I had no interest in music, but there are those who see a guitar, see drums. You know, they they grab it. They start. You mm -hmm. know. Uh, you yeah, know, but you're an athlete, and it's a different form of creation. But it's the yeah. same thing. It's like you 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 um, you address the energy that's inside of you, and then you go and find that you know particular thing in the community and interact with it. And that's what you did as an athlete. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'm saying same as an entertainer athlete. You know, whatever. Yeah, same we all entertain it. You yeah. just chose another direction yeah, that's all. to go in. That's all. It's creative. I call them, I call us creatives. Is what yeah. we are. Yeah, the creativity. Mm -hmm. So I, I would like to, you know, further figure out how to get, you know, young men and women who who have the creativity, which a lot of them do. Yeah. Well, for us, I mean, that that part, part is easy. Working. You know, you have, um, you have like uh, all types of organizations that. Their whole thing, in a nutshell, is creating uh, creative outlets. So you got, you know, you have uh, talent schools. You've got uh, producers that are grooming young talent. You have uh, you got all kind of people 
that are working that in. I mean, for instance, um, we have a, a, a sister, uh, well, we have a community partners relationship with uh, the West, West Baton Rouge Parish Museum, right? And on the west side of the river, they're training a bunch of young people right now on slum harpo music. And I'm talking about people that are, you know, uh, 12 years old and down to about six, seven years old. And uh, they're planning a performance where they're gonna bring them from the west side of the river, from the museum where they rehearse at, over to do a show at, oh, at Henry Turner oh, Listen, So we get that component and it's built in and uh, we, we partner with other nonprofits and people like that to bring those kind of things to the forefront and give them that experience and that outlet. And put them in there on stage with some other musicians, you know, right. and stuff like so that. So just, well, I know Angelique at the, the West Baton Rouge right. Museum, she has right. a, a heart for a community. Oh, she and has a great, people. great mind. Yeah, yeah, she, Jeannie, she make Angelique. A She's want to make a yeah, difference. That's right. And you really do. Now, the, you've been here, what, nine, 10 years? Yeah, 2014 is when we started. Oh, yeah. gone on 10 years then. Mm -hmm. And you've been to the same location. same location. You got any plans to expand, move into another, to well, another I mean, level, we're, another dimension? Yeah, I mean, we're always expanding the footprint, but we always feel like the landmark is important, too. And uh, I'll give you an example. We expanded in 2017. We went down to the Belle of Baton Rouge, and we opened a listening room there. And uh, we partnered with them, and we was there exactly a year and uh, decided to uh, put the focus back on the original landmark. The reason, the reason that happened is because we found out that all of your people that's coming from other countries and, and other uh, unique markets, right? When they come to America, they want to come. They're looking for original. They're looking for the original. They don't want to sit in the hotel. Right, no, right. they don't want to sit in the hotel or a casino. Tabby proved that. Right, right. Right. I what mean, they're looking for is get, show me an original building where the energy and the vibe is in the building. Like, for instance, last night when the folks got here from New York, when they walked in, they said, wow, I can feel this, man. This is the real thing. This, this is a real juke joint. This now, is real. On. Now, you got to tell me, you just like black <laughs> or you just roll, you paint this building inside black? So well, what, what's, what's the logic behind it? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, as I toured uh, America and then went in and out in the country, I noticed that everybody that was capturing film was in what I call a black box theater, right? And black box theaters, like, you know, like when you go to the movies to watch a film, everything is dark in the movie. Okay. When you walk in, it's pitch black, right? <laughs> yeah, and then you might see some lights at the bottom. They call them running, running, foot running lights. That's so you can see the chairs and know where to walk. Yeah. You know, they got triple, 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 triple. Yeah, well, so that's a black box theater. And what that does is it brings your attention to whatever it is you're presenting. You see what I'm saying? Now, for instance, like earlier today, when we, when we were setting up for this podcast, you were worried. You say, it might be too dark in here, man. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> but as soon as I, I turned on soft light, right, all of a sudden it was clean. It popped out. But now, if this was a white wall behind us, we'll I don't care what kind of light yeah. you put on. We'll fade exactly, the background. Exactly. Right. You know, okay. so, so your black box theater is always for capturing the subject uh, close up. That's what they say. The Bible says, out of darkness comes light. That's right. You see, you see what I'm saying? So, so you, have to, you, know, you have to be aware of what it is you're trying to accomplish before you do it. Now, I didn't always know that, 
but I kept asking questions because I would go, you know, while I was touring, I'd go to these places, man, and we go to the gig, you know, and, and I said, man, it's a beautiful place, man. Why the stage is black, the curtains is black, everything black. I was, what were they trying to like send a message or something? You, know, you got a black band or something? I mean, what, what is it? You know. But then I realized that with black you can control the light, with white you can't. You cannot control the light because it's reflective. It bounces. It does all kinds of stuff. But with black, you can control it. You know, because wherever you put the light, it stays. Right? If we, if the, if we turned off these lights right now, wherever there's light, that's the only thing you're gonna see. It's gonna highlight. That's right. That's the only thing you're gonna see. If there's no light, everything goes black. But now, if if we turned off the lights and everything in here was white, it'll just fade to gray. Your camera will go to gray. You know, because why? Because it's going to turn into a gray tone. Yeah, <laughs> you that's, know? that's a bit of a great affliction. Yeah. Now, years ago, I used to see Henry Turner everywhere. Matter of right. fact, one day I saw you gave me a CD. Mm -hmm. That was years ago. Oh, right? yeah. You had oh, made yeah. that song. I can't remember the name of that song. Which one? Was it a uh, Poor Man or something? It, it, it was a blues or a reggae? I think it was a combination. Okay. I can't remember the name. It, it hit pretty good. You, okay. just, you gave me the CD, mm -hmm. and about a few months later, it was on the radio so it, and all it that. Still was playing. It. Poor man. That was I called can't poor man. I can't remember what yeah, it was called poor man. At that time, at that time, we were um, we were doing a transition. We were tr we were proving that blues is reggae and reggae is blues, right? Okay. And uh, we had, yeah, we had a concept <laughs> going because, you know, I had started doing a Bob Marley festival tour, and I started interacting with all these major uh, reggae artists, and. Uh, they was telling me things like, man, uh, reggae is really blues, man. And I said, no, I don't think so, man. Is <laughs> it? No, 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 man, it's blues, it's blues. I said, no, nah, it's not blues. And then so I met a Zydeco guy, he told me the same thing. He said, man, Zydeco is really blues, man. I said, no, man, oh, <laughs> nah, I don't believe that. You know? But then, you know, uh, there's a formula called one, four, five. And the rhythm is something you hear all the time, right? And based on dialect of where you are in the country or in the world, you know, if you do that one, four, five rhythm, of course you're going to put your slant on it. But um, when the guy told me how reggae actually got developed to the sound that we know it as today, you know, he said that um, they had radio stations from New Orleans and from Florida that was playing black soul music and blues music. Like when you're down in Florida, AM radio followed the contours of the earth, AM radio signal. So it can, it can cross water, because wherever the earth is, it's gonna find it. And it gonna come up on the land. And now because if, if there's like 50 or 100 miles of water between it, and it can travel all through that water and then come up on the land right there, well, it might not be as clear as it is on the other side of the, the water. You know what I'm saying? On this side of the water, it might be clean and clear. But when you get over there, you can still hear it, but they call it a skip, right? Because it, it skipped all this stuff, and boom, here it is again. Now, um, to give you an example, something that you could relate to, you ever heard of a station called WLAC in Nashville? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's when we was kids. You yeah, could listen yeah. to it late yeah. night on the radio. Yeah. Well, that was a 50,000-watt uh, clear channel AM station. And because AM followed the contours of the earth, you could hear that station coast to coast. 
in, in, uh, in uh, the USA. From Nashville, on a good night, they could hear in LA because it travels the contours of the earth. Now, FM is a signal that travels in the air, right? So wherever it cut off, it cuts off. But AM, it can bounce everywhere. So folks who's in Jamaica, they would hear a song coming out of a radio station in New Orleans, right? In New Orleans. In, from New Orleans. But they could barely hear it because it was a skip. And you know how back in the 50s and 60s, you turn to your radio you, 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 you barely hear it. Right. And then you hear a little music. And so they'll hear a song, doom, ah, doom, doom, ah, doom, ah, like that. But by the time they were listening to it in Jamaica, it might have been, ah, ah, kadak, doom. But the real rhythm is they hear it almost upside down. So they started learning it like that. Right? Upside down. They create their own. Well, they they thought it was duplicating what they heard. They ended up creating their own with the reggae. Right. So, but it's proof though that reggae is blue. Yeah, because but you can So but it proves though that the formula, that the derivative formula was blues. So that means that the people of the U.S. But then again, I talked to a brother from Senegal. Mm -hmm. He told me that's where blues came from. Well, like, well, we believe, now this is what we believe. We believe that the slaves brought blues with them. Yeah. That's what we think. We think the people that came from Africa brought it over to America, right? And then we also believe that just as usual, Americans take everything and throw everything in it yeah, and change can, it up. Yeah, we can do right. that. So that's what I think happened with the music, period. Now, we know that in America, the oldest form of black music is blues. We know that. We know that jazz came from it. At one point, we thought it was a big argument, like what is jazz, what is blues? But then it's been proven that jazz came from blues. Now, people go all the way back to Buddy Bolden. They go to Louis Armstrong. And you, know, you got Joe King Oliver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they'll go all the way back, and then they'll find that these guys have described their music as blues, even though other people call it jazz. They, they have people that took credit for creating the word jazz, right? And, and they'll say, yeah, I call my music jazz, you know, whatever, and you go back and find it might be a white person or something. She yeah. had a term with me a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago that had really stood in my spirit. Mm -hmm. You call it cultural economics. Now you need to, like most folks say, you need to explain that to everybody. Yeah, well the culture economy is, is what, I, what I mentioned. And um, you know, it's simple. If you find all the different talent um, and turn it into uh, some type of medium of exchange, you know, and put a value on it, it becomes economics you know like if, if everybody's out here jumping and flipping and tripping and whatever it's entertainment but when a group of people look at it and say I think that people have come paid to see that now I become economics mm. now it might be culturally your thing to jump rope and it might mean nothing to you other than your grandmother jumped good rope and you jump good rope right and it's just a thing they come down to the family. We all jump rope. But in the culture economy, there are a group of people that, that can out jump rope anybody else in the world. 
and that's worth paying for. That's worth a documentary. That's worth coming to an arena to see. You know, that's worth putting it in the theater. You know, and that's the culture economy. The culture economy is taking those cultural things and monetizing them and turning it into its own economy. You know, and that's where we are. There's, and, and I'm not making that name up. There are actually, uh, Louisiana has a culture economy, and they have people that actually operate and uh, administrate the culture economy here. You know, if you, use, if you use the Google culture economy, Louisiana, you'll see it all it'll come up. You know. And they're just taking the, the, like you say, the different gifts and talents that there are certain people that do things on a level that separates them from everybody else. Absolutely. And you take those people, like you, you're right, people would pay mm -hmm. to see something that's- Or to learn to, it. To learn it, right. To learn it, so to that, see it, so, so be entertained by it, whatever. So now you're saying that the culture that creates these great, uh, have these great gifts and talents, need to figure out how to monetize it, or need to start monetizing it. Well, we need to start monetizing because <laughs> We have a wealth of education and knowledge about economy now. We have a, a wealth uh, of knowledge about economics and how it works. We know everything from digital distribution to how to count footprints, how to uh, track uh, data and analytics. We, got, we, we know everything we need to know. Now we just have to turn it into uh, a way to monetize it. You know, and that's, that's, that's being done as we speak because Everybody's exploring that avenue, you know, not just other co other communities. Our communities are doing the same thing too. So over the years, <clears throat> there have been a few of us made a few dollars, but for the most part, as a community, you know, we we generate a lot of eco income mm -hmm. and uh, economics, but we don't build wealth in our community. We don't build. A, but we don't build generational, generational wealth. wealth. Right, that's what we don't so build. We build wealth, we, yeah, but, so we, we but to, it's individuals. So I mean, need, like at one point, teaching. Lyman White had money, mm -hmm. a lot of money, everybody knew that, right? And then you say, well, where's the next generation of Lyman White money? Where is it? Well, Lyman White used the money to enrich his community and did everything you could possibly do, just like Jimmy Hines did and different other people that I know personally. I know these people. I'm not, mm -hmm. this ain't no dream. This ain't nothing I'm talking about. I mean, I, I saw you guys work. I know what you did. You know, I saw, I saw how much you put in. I saw how many people you poured into. You follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But now that generational wealth, that means that you would have to take somebody and train them to be the next Lima White. You'd have to train somebody to be the next Jimmy Hines. You'd have to train somebody to be the next Henry Turn. And you would have to teach them how to monetize so the wealth becomes generational and go down to different generations. Now, most people st relate that to family, right? My thing is, no, you want to relate that to cultural bearers, torch bearers, cultural community. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who understand it. You might talk to your kids or your family till you blow in the face about it, and they'd be like, that's something Uncle Lyman do. I don't do that. Let's get some money from Uncle Lyman. Cool. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? But the next guy across town who's doing that, he looking over there, he said, man, I want to be like Lyman White. And I saw what he did. With his restaurant over there on Highland Road. I saw what he did with the King Solomon stuff back there behind him. And see, I want to do that. I want to be like that. Well, that's the guy that's going to have the next generation of wealth because he wanted. That's the guy that want to understand it. 
as a guy that could benefit from a lineman white, right? Whereas these other people, they already got a lineman white. They're saying, we don't need to duplicate that. Let's go over and talk to Uncle Lyman, man. You know, whatever, Cousin Lyman. <laughs> you know, you see what I'm saying? So that's, that's the whole thing where we are as uh, uh, torchbearers, community bearers, you know, cultural bearers, uh, the keepers of the creativity. That's our challenge. You know what I'm saying? How do we make that happen? And how do we actually get people into understanding that they have to monetize that so it exists and it stays. That's a serious conversation. Oh yeah, yeah. An in-depth one that it probably take years to really see the real true market. Because, and just, just know too that some to of us, it. some of us are on the right path already. And some of us have already laid the work and don't really realize the influence that we've put in the community. You know, when you say, Oh man, the great Henry Turner, the things that he's done in the community. Well, because you've seen some things that I've done and you are pushing the narrative on that, believe me, you will impact some people that are impressed by Lyman White. Just like I will impact some people that are impressed by Henry Turner. You know what I'm saying? And that's the future. That's, that's the people who are listening. That's the ear that you have. That's the heart that's open. You know, that's, that's the, the next the next tier, the next group of people, you know? So, I mean, we, 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 we making some moves and that's, that's what we're doing right now. Our thinking, man, we, we have to think about, if I see a guy across town that reminds me of me, I need to go over there and talk to this cat, you know? If there's something he's missing that I can put in, I need to put it in. I mean, you got me thinking different now. Yeah. I'm telling yeah. you. Well, that, that's what and we I do, that's what we're supposed it. to do. And each generation is supposed to get wiser about that. You know, it's supposed to keep on going until it's, it's, you know. I mean, for instance, I have a guy here with me right now, Kevin White. This guy uh, came from the old Tabby's Blues Box experience. He's been gone from the market for 30 years. Came back into town. You know, he's looking for a way back in the marketplace. That's easy for me. So I just went and scooped him up, put him in here in the listening room, then introduced him to the community. And... You know, I'm watching the community embrace him and, you know, and him pick himself up and do some interesting creative things and stuff like that. That's the magic. That's the stuff that, that's all you have to do. Kevin has a beautiful spirit about him. Right. So, you know, he got a receptive spirit and all that makes a difference. Right. Well, all creatives, yeah, yeah. to some degree, is looking for an outlet. And, all, and uh, one of the things that was, was taught to me um, through my elders in, in, in the uh, business arena, all people are humble until they get a couple million dollars. All right, so. Don't even take that much. Right. Yeah. But see, my thing is, it's like, you know, like with my nephew, Christopher Turner, stuff that he does, I remember his mom and a couple other people came to me, they said, man, I think you created a monster. I said, what you mean? They said, well, man, now he, you know, he got a few dollars, he's getting an attitude, you know, he teaches over at the school. They, they, they collaborated with him over the university. I called and told him about stopping by and putting the garbage out. And he just started saying he didn't have time. And then, <laughs> I said, well, I said, well, wait. I said, why are you guys calling me? They said, well, you're the one who said promote his art. You're the one who told us to do all this stuff and all that. And now now he, he thinks he's bigger than us. And I'm his mom. I'm the one who had him. You know what I mean? I mean, I understand he's your nephew, but I mean, don't you think this has gone far enough? I said, well, look. I said, I'm going to tell you something. I said, I'm going to be clear with you. I said, because 
when I, when I chose to promote him and work with him, y'all was excited. You was happy. Yeah, but we didn't know all this was going to happen. And blah, 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 blah. I said, well, right now you probably called him the wrong person. They said, well, why? Why? I mean, you know, you're my brother. You can't, you can't listen to what I'm saying. I said, well, I heard what you said. I said, but see, now, you, you know, the, the way you're talking, it's like you wanted him to be recognized, but you didn't want him to get too big where you couldn't control him and all this kind of stuff. And I said, you know, every, every person who has power eventually wants some freedom. You know, you weren't prepared for that? You, you didn't think that one day you were going to say, hey, look, I ain't got time, to, you know, to break the yard. I hired somebody to break the yard. I got, you know, I got some real business I got to tell you. So you weren't ready, you know. And we was all laughing about it, but it was serious, and, right, and they started right. to get my drift. Right. And I said, you know, I said, I'm going to be honest with you. I said, I know y'all going to be mad at me for years now because now that I know that the ego has developed, I'm going to try to turn him into Picasso or anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I was going for him. And I called him and I told him, I said, man. They, they put you yeah, on notice, I said, man. come on, man. You ready now, man. You got an ego and everything. You ready. Come on, let's put some money in. Let's do it. You know? And he was laughing, but he was serious because he knew what I was saying. What he was saying was, you've declared your independence. Now you can actually move on to something bigger. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's what you have to do. You ready? He ready to step up. Yeah, exactly. And so you, you want to feed that. You don't want to oppress that or suppress that. I mean, why would you want to do it? Suppose somebody had, uh, you know, oppressed uh, Picasso. You know, so, suppose somebody had did that to Matisse, you know, or, or the great artists of, of their times. You can't do that. You know, once it grows, man, I mean, you want to you fertilize it. You don't want to kill it. But <laughs> you grew it. But unfortunately, you see that a lot. Yes. You know? Yeah. Once you grow, just as far as they can still have the hand on you. Exactly. But that ain't, that ain't the way it works. Yeah, no, once it start growing, man, you don't know. Yeah, that's what you want to do. You want yeah, it to that's grow. what you wanted. That's what you wanted. That's like the, the soul food festival. That's it. That's covered up. That's it. That you've been with your grooming and yeah. five and years. Five years. It's going to be your yeah. fifth year? Six. Six years? Six, yeah. So tell us about the soul food festival. When is it? What yes. is it expected? Who are we going to be listening to? Well, the soul food festival uh, takes place May 18th as a pre-party right here on May 18th at this listening room. And uh, it'll feature a soul food cook. With, with, with that 2733? North Street. North 2733 North Street. Okay. North Street. Yeah. yeah, and that and that starts at like 7 o'clock, and it'll go to midnight. And we're going to feature like a soul food cook. Uh, we have uh, Cafe Express from up the street on okay. North Street. They've yeah. been around 29 years. Yeah, they're my people. Really. Okay. I, what's, what's the name of Long legacy. I'm dealing yeah, with the son, but yeah. but you're talking about the mother. Mom, I'm talking about yeah. mom. Yeah. You know, the son actually runs the joint now. And uh, the mom comes in, but he runs it. Okay. Mom yeah. and, the, and the sister, too? She's yeah, I think, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. all of them come to. So um, they, they're going to showcase some food here that night. Uh, it's going to be lots of entertainment, that kind of thing. You know, we're going to talk about soul food. We're going to, um, you know, showcase some artists, that kind of thing. Uh, the Soul Food Festival then moves on a day later, not the next day, but a day after, into the downtown on May 20th and May 21st. And it'll be at Riverfront Plaza. That's right across the street from the River Center. That will take on, you know, like a whole cultural aspect. We'll have, like, bands. Uh, we'll have some, some creative dance from different cultures. We'll have um, African storyteller will be there. You know, lots of blues music. And then 
we got one of the founding family families from the Baton Rouge Blues Festival, the Neil family, and they're gonna they're gonna um, they're gonna headline uh, Sunday, right? And, uh, two days. Yes, yeah, so two days, Saturday, mm -hmm. Sunday. And they'll they'll bring in the whole family, Tyree, Lil Ray, Kenny, um, you know, Larry, all all of them will be there. Uh, I'm sure the girls will be there, everybody will be there. You know. Okay. It'll be a it'll be a good thing, it'll be a family vibe, you know. And uh it'll be it'll be solid. Mm -hmm. Now, uh on Saturday, uh Billy Eckstein's son will be here. Oh Lord. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Billy Eckstein uh, has a son, Freddie Eckstein, and Freddie's out in Las Vegas. And we've done some work with him in the West, toured around a little bit, and done some shows with him out there. For the first time, he's going to come and uh, and get involved. So he'll be here to uh, do a, a special performance on Saturday. So. Now, what, what time we get started? Uh, it's eleven o'clock thing and it goes to like seven o'clock. And normally normally people are leaving around eight, eight fifteen, eight thirty, somewhere around there. And this is uh, uh, your grandchild oh, that, that you thought about created five six years ago. And yeah. I think I think the first year you must have worked really close with Chicken Shack or mm -hmm. Joe Delpit. I remember that's that was, the name. Yeah, that was second year. <laughs> that was second, second year. year. I remember that's the name I heard for yeah. for that whole several months. I like that. Yeah, well, that was good. Yeah, well, Joe Delpit uh, and his father were great soul uh, food pioneers for um, Baton Rouge. And we have, and every year we have a, a soul food pioneer. We have somebody that has supplied soul food in the community for a long period of time and done it with quality and style, you know, so... Joe Delpy was a pleasure for us because he's, he's a legend himself. And then the, uh, the brand that he represent is awesome. You know, the right. chicken and the size and the food and the stories behind all of it is incredible. And it's an impeccable product, you know. But now, just to clarify, my whole motivation for the Soul Food Festival was all based on the fact that... Um, I felt like soul food had been stolen from us as a culture, right? Now, this was my personal thing, because, you know, you know, I mean, you know for yourself, man, you know, when you had your restaurant down on Nicholson Drive or Highland or whatever, and all these other uh, places that were cooking greens and, you know, beans and chicken and all that stuff, you know, the doctors in the city white and black eventually was saying stuff like, well, man, if you're going to eat all this food with all these carbs, you're going to eat triple carbs on a plate. You know, you, you're, going to, you're going to eat cornbread, mashed potatoes, you know, and, and all this stuff, and, and then you're going to have corn and, you know, and uh, steak and, and rice and gravy, you know, all on the same place, like triple carbs and, you know, and this and that. And, uh, you know, eventually it's just not going to work for you. Ain't gonna be no good for you. I was one of those that bought into that in the early '80s. I said, "Man, I gotta change my diet up. I gotta, you know, cause gain a few pounds. You know, I feel like sometimes a little trouble breathing. You know, I mean, maybe I got, you know, oh man, my blood pressure's up. <laughs> you know, whatever. So I started thinking about all of that too. At one point, I almost stopped eating fried food and, and different stuff. You know, and uh, as opposed to pushing it back and going into moderation, I cut it all the way out. You know, I, I started thinking about the whole thing. I said, now, here we are, 
We didn't stop cooking that way. We've uh, listened to everything the doctor said, but we can't even go to the gas station. And the Arab brothers got a big old pan of fried chicken right there. <laughs> Some turkey potato wing. log. Turkey wing, a turkey wing is so big, you'd be like, what turkey this came off of? <laughs> you know, I mean, all of this kind of stuff. And I was like, wait a minute. I was like, wait, it looked like, it looked like, looked like we've been duped again. It looked like we might've been hooked again because people ain't stopped buying soul food. They just don't buy it from us no more. You know, so so I started thinking about that, and I said, yeah. I said, man, um, now I know they got the mom and pop soul food people out there. I know you got people still know how to cook soul, food. but they embarrassed. They don't have no no platform. They don't have you know, cause I, I mean, man, I I didn't eat a chitlin, man, for about twenty years. I ain't had a chitlin in twenty years until the third soul food festival. I broke down. <laughs> I broke. I passed by and I smelled the chitlin, and I said. Ain't nobody looking at us. Give, give me two or three of the pieces. <laughs> and then I tasted it. I tasted it. I mean, after, after almost 30, 20 some years. I said, fix me a plate. <laughs> Go to fix me a plate. I went out where I got in my car. You know, I got my limo because the window's tinted. You know, I'm in there. <laughs> I told her I'm like, then I got scared. Then I got scared, right? We felt like you was born again. Yeah, yeah. Then I got scared, though. I said. I said, man, I said, boy, I might have a stroke or something, man. I said, man, chill, I, 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 man, I went home, man, I got me two blood pressure pills, and I took them, I said, man, I said, I'm gonna take two pills, man. I don't wanna, I don't wanna die, you know? <laughs> I'm still scared, I'm still scared, like, man. But for a couple of days, you know, I ain't no meat at all, you know, I just got trying to flush it through my system, you know? But it was so good. You enjoyed it, dude. It was so good. It was so good, man. I said, Lord, have mercy, man. This is too much, man. It's amazing. Everything great about our community, great about us. We've turned against it. Well, we've been turned we've against been it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, uh, and that's, that is. Yeah, as opposed to, you know, following some of the writings and the teachings, do all things in moderation, this, that, and the other, whatever. Because that's, that's what it's about. And, uh, Matter of fact, uh, uh, people who don't, most people don't know this. I didn't. I found, I found this out a few years ago. Matter of fact, Oprah is the one who kind of got it started. It, the thing that caused uh, really high blood pressure, bad cholesterol, diabetes, mm -hmm. all that, red meat. Mm -hmm. Most people never. That's right. But they promote eating red meat. Red meat. Yeah. But that's the main cause. Of those things. And Oprah talked about that years ago about the farmer and they sued her. That's right. <laughs> you remember that? That's the right. cattle farmers That's right. sued her. And because now the things we grew up with, I mean, I, we didn't realize we was eating good. Now we we have gotten it twisted. Eating good now is going out eating eating a steak, all this fried seafood, mm -hmm. and our mind, well we ate good today. But you killing yourself. That's right. We eat we ate good coming up because we ate number of vegetables. That's right. Matter of fact, I and a little meat. Very little meat. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I got to LSU, they put that big old steak on my plate. I'm like, what I'm going to do with this? I mean, I'm so, supposed yeah, to. That's a lot of meat. That's a lot of meat. I'm like. And they said, oh, man, you need the protein, oh, yeah. no lemon. We're going to build you up, going to put some muscles on you. My players, my players. Teammates. They, teammates, they say, look. Let me have it. They saw cut. Every time they said they knew they had steak, they came set by me, cause I said you can have it. Didn't want no that I, that turned me off. I'm like, well, I'm gonna do this big old piece of meat. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, 
I couldn't see myself eating all that all meat. That. So the Soul Food Festival was created to to, to uplift. Yeah, your to community. bring to bring our whole vibe back about soul food about, and what it really your, is. About your culture, <clears throat> right? Who you are, and be proud of absolutely. it. Absolutely. And uh, and 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 man, did it work? I mean, you know, our people, man. The first year, it was uh, it was cool, but the second year, man, people just started ringing the phone off the hook. Uh, man, you know, my grandmother had a recipe. Blah 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 blah. Man, look, my uncle's still living. He's 79 years old, man, and man, he do he do this thing, man, with rosemary baked chicken and blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean, it was probably just, it was amazing, you know, the people that responded and what type of responses. So long as the yeah. weather is good, it oh, should yeah. be, it's going to be a great weekend. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we're going we gonna to trust that yeah. it's going to be a great weekend. Well, we, we always say rain or shine. Rain or shine. You know why we say rain or shine? Because yeah. as soon as it stops raining, people going to go right back to eating chickens. <laughs> You ain't gonna stop no people from eating tennis, man. Well, look, You're not I mean, gonna stop it. We were supposed to have a discussion here about cultural economy. economy. Community needs to hear, need to know, and start thinking that way. You know, support yeah, we, I mean, we touched on the basics, man, and we touched on generational wealth. We touched on the cultural economy and what it is. You know, and I guess the only thing you can really do, what I would suggest for intellects and intellectual people you know, and we are that in our communities because we are highly educated now, you know, and the ones who are not highly educated are representing the ones who are not. So they should just go ahead and research, just just Google cultural economy, uh, cultural economics, things of that nature, and just start reading about it and learning what organizations and what, you know, uh, sectors of the country and, and who all is involved. We, we, we need to jumpstart this in Baton Rouge by you said there's an organization here. Maybe we need to have a, a session over here at the listening room. We could, yeah. And have that discussion. And I know one of the ladies that. involved in the cultural economy, um, she's a, a Cajun lady out of Lafayette, and she works uh, with the New Orleans Clinic uh, for musicians. We've had many, many discussions, and we've done different little projects and things, you know. So, yeah, all stuff like that is doable. We just have to set mm -hmm. it up right and make it happen. Yeah, mm -hmm. because it's like uh, when I saw you at that, Artpreneur mm -hmm. uh, conference that was really first class. Yeah, that was the power. I mean, that was mm -hmm. some two days of great, great information. Yeah. Uh, I just wish that that the younger people could have been there to benefit from that. Mm -hmm. And that was done by Culture Crossroad, Dr. Joyce Jackson. Right. Dr. Joyce Jackson, the chancellor, I mean, not chancellor, the chairman of the Department at LSU, with the uh, geography and anthropology department, mm -hmm. and uh, our dear sister Jerry Hobley. Right. Hobby. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was done on a level that yeah, first class that you hardly see mm -hmm. around Baton Rouge. <clears throat> so hopefully there'll be many, many more of these kind of these type of conferences. You know, or go to these uh, fabulous music conferences, similar to like Entrepreneur. Um, <clears throat> Eric Cage, one of the guys that spoke. I've been knowing that guy for like 30 years, and uh, he has a fabulous um, conference in New Orleans called the Cutting Edge Music Business Conference. And a lot of the techniques and a lot of stuff that I use today, I learned from, from that conference. Mm -hmm. I met top-notch music and attorney, uh, music, you know, uh, lawyers and attorneys. I met uh, <coughs> a lot of major publishers, met a lot of marketers, a lot of producers. I met the Bob Marley people right there and showcased for them in New Orleans and got on their tour. 
you know. Um, so that's that's been a great wealth and a resource. You know. Well, that's that's what I've learned here having this discussion with with you today. Henry Turner has a message. Oh, absolutely. And it's, yeah. it's much deeper and more powerful than most can imagine. Well, it's way beyond show business yeah. and. Uh, yeah. And, community and, based. Yeah, it's it's uh it's about embracing, you know, your your uh, community, and learning about economics and um, you know, and your culture, to the point where you, uh, you know, you perpetuate all the things that it takes for that that wealth building and that generational stuff. You know, so that's my goal. That's what I do. <clears throat> that's all. No, that's what you're you doing. Yeah, that's what I do way. every day. Every, every day I wake up. Well, few are chosen, you know, and then even fewer are calling, you know. But I believe that when you, uh, like Dick Gregory said, when you put on the glasses, you can't take them off. <laughs> Once they put the glasses on you, even if they take the glasses off, you still see the same thing, and they know it, you know what I'm saying? So, and that's all exposure is. Exposure is, you know, when you t show somebody something they didn't know the day before, the moment before, now they have to reason with themselves based on reality. Yeah. And that's the danger within yourself. Mm -hmm. that, that happened to me when I took a trip, my first trip to Egypt. There you go. With Dr. Ben Yahakana. Yes, indeed. I mean, you know, you can't be the same. Mm -mm. If you come back the same, something got to be wrong. You, you, you ain't going to be yeah. worth nothing to anybody. Right. It, well, it's you, a, level, it's a right. level of frustration you have, but at the same time, you have hope for your people. I mean, my, man, some of my biggest frustrations, Lyman, is, you know, walking through the community, looking at the people. And saying, say, man, put the bottle down, put the tobacco down, put the drugs down, and let's reason about real things. And they said, man, it ain't, it ain't bothering me, man. I'm cool. It, 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 ain't, it ain't bothering me, man. <laughs> he said, hold up, man. <laughs> they said, hey, man, wake up. And I wasn't sleeping, man. I was just, you know, I just nodded off for a second. Everything okay? <laughs> and you said, come on, man. You know, you, you, you can't. And no, they can't, you know, but now here it is. You watch them wake up a little bit each day, mm -hmm. right? Because if you keep on waking them up, you keep on shaking, you keep on shaking. Sooner or later, they're going to become conscious of their own behavior. And they're going to look around and say, well, I may not want to do that while you're around. I mean, you know, so, and then they say, well, you know, don't tell by the time. Don't tell, don't tell. Because you know how he is, man. He gonna be, but then that little bit of consciousness is enough to bring it forward. We have to figure out how to use this to move Others for Others for the community. And we do that. We do that every day, and that's what we're doing right now. I mean, just like with your podcast and your listening room, Soul Food Festival, and all the other events that I do, you know, I try to uh, be transparent enough to show people that freedom is in your mind. It could be manifested any day, any moment, any time. It's up to you. But also I learned, too, that freedom is not free. No, it costs to be free. <laughs> Yeah. And that's what most people don't want to pay. pay. They don't yeah. want to pay that cost. Yeah. You got to close out by giving us a little more history. Turner and the Moors. <laughs> uh, you got well, to connect know, this to you got to yeah, connect this. I'm a, um, you know, I'm going to say this. I, I feel like um, a person that's totally ignorant of the past connection to the current. Right with the Turners because I have encountered so many things. Um, I've come, I've encountered so many sects of Turners. It's like you're white. That brother right there is a white, but it's a different sect. 
The only way you could find out if it's connected, you would have to do enough research to where you find the link, right? So I had a brother came here a week ago. He said, uh, he said, man, my name is Harry Turner. He said, I've been hearing about you most of my life. He said, I had to come down here to meet you, man. He said, because I know we got to be can. You know, he said, uh, he said, man, I came from like Plaquemine, Paris. My area is Plaquemine, Paris. You know? Yeah. So he said, uh, he said, the Turner's down there, old man. He said, bro, they called us crazy. I said, yeah, because it's a violent set of Turners down. He said, how you know, man? I said, because most of the Turners, you know, were violent sets of Turners because they was always fighting against oppression and fighting against, you know, community and slavery. Nat Turner was one of yeah. them. Yeah, and he said, he said, man, I feel like we got to be kin to Nat Turner because, you know, I have that, 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 he said, man, my blood boils, man, when I see something wrong. And something that's being done to our people, man, it ain't got to be my family. It just, you know, I said, well, the, the whole Turner thing, man, I said, if you, uh, if you do some research and enough research, you're going to find that there are graveyards of Turners all across the country. And they got one brother, Dr. Bay. He's a family member. And uh, he's done some of the lineage and some of the heritage. And, and me and him are supposed to get together soon, as a matter of fact. To talk about it, he's here in Baton Rouge. He has a school right back here on Bogan Walk. Mm -hmm. And he did a book on the Turners. Yeah, and uh, he takes it all the way back to, in Louisiana, to the Moulin Rouge land grant. And uh, he, takes it back, he takes it back to Irene Turner, <laughs> right, who, who owned everything from above Shreveport all the way to oh, yeah, the that, Gulf. That, that, what they call it again? The, the Moulin Rouge Land Grant. No, what, what would they call They called her. And then, I forgot what they called her. The, she had to change her name. A group of them changed their name. A group of Turners became Tunicas. And then they went back to being Turners. They called her the Emperor. Yeah. The emperor. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, but they had to change their name, man, because they decided to kill all the Turners. Right, and, and the violent turners, of course, rose up. <laughs> but but they decided to kill all the turners because they said, this dude Henry Turner talking about he owned all the Americas. That would be all of the United States, Canada. <laughs> we know we got to kill him if we can find him, and, and any of his offsprings, we got to kill everybody, you know. And uh, and then here's some years later, he go Irene Turner saying, yeah, well, all of this right here is mine, all of it. You know, here's the paperwork. Right, <laughs> they're saying, well, uh-uh, uh-uh. Now we we gonna have to we gonna have to exterminate these turners again because they they go with the same stuff, you know. They they go with the same stuff to my they they was cutting deals way before the other okay. folks got here and all that kind of stuff. That, that was the Washington people. Yeah. Okay. And the tunica and all that. Yeah, the Washington. People. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All of that kind of stuff. So, uh, like I say, I'm ignorant to a lot of it, man, and I'm trying to learn it. Uh, Bay's supposed to help me out, you know. Well, you know right yeah, you know I need help, so he's gonna help me. But then a lot of turners, like I said, are coming to me for support. So I mean, I'm I'm never going to uh, give up on the journey of trying to know the people for real, you know. And uh, and one of the things uh, Dr. Bay told me, uh, being a turner is one thing, but bearing the name Henry Turner, right, is a mark, mm -hmm. because. Henry Turner was the guy, the Mora. 
right. that say owned all of the Americas. So they have a problem with the name Henry Turner. <laughs> a lot, a lot of, a lot of communities have a problem with the name as, Henry Turner. As you say that now, I forgot about that. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot I, of communities have a problem with I, I the name got, Henry Turner. I got Turner. a little information. I, I can yeah. remember some of that. They have a, a lot of people have a problem with the name Henry Turner. Now they don't have a problem with the mentality because they can embrace the mentality because the mentality is not about color. It's about power and it's about economics and all the other stuff. So people. People of all walks of life relate to me. They don't have no problem with me. But when people do research, then they start having a problem with some of that, you know. Mm -hmm. So they, they know who you are. Then. Yeah, well, they, they know the lineage. Yeah, they know right. who you are. Right, and, and that is, you know, yeah, that's sometimes that's, I can't, yeah, that's could be that's a little, little threatening. That's a little too much. That's a, that could be threatening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and I mean, I feel like the more information uncovered and the more things that uh, we can shed light on the better off all of our people are you know because i, I think we're going to find out that our role in america was a lot different than uh the historians that told me well you know? I, I, i'm gonna tell you historian yeah that told history, right. yeah uh, historian but his story yeah. you know we, we know how that works as we we can see now but i mean you know say man when you look at us as a people as a whole we created other races of people. We've indoctrinated uh, the world. We've populated the world. And still, some of us hate ourselves. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, and then we have nerve enough to say that somebody else did it. That, that's the part that kills me and say, man, but they enslaved us. They did it. Man, nobody did that, man. You, you know, if you, if you, uh, I mean, that's just like, if, if you come to me and you say, man, Henry, you'll never, get, you'll never know what they did to me down at LSU. You, you just don't know what they did to me down there, man. They got me in there, put a big stake on the table, man, and start threatening me, put me out there, and told me I better do this and do that. And then after they did that, man, they sent me somewhere and paid me, and then told me, man, that's it, Lyman, you can go on home now. Oh, they treated me so bad. <laughs> the rest of your cousins, <laughs> your brother said, well, they didn't, they didn't come get me. No. They never came and got me. Why Lama's so mad? What's wrong with Lama, man? Lama mad. He told me they treated him so bad. I told Mama I'd go. She said, no, 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 baby. You can't go. They got Lama already. <laughs> you, know I mean? you know, you see what I'm saying? This is, this is uh, the type of people we are, though. So sometimes knowing what we know about ourselves is the most embarrassing thing. But also, the most powerful thing is, is knowing that we know ourselves even more than we think we do, right? Because the historians and the people on our side of the, of the coin who has uh, documented our history, they save some knowledge that we need. And as we share and as we, you know, inspire to get that knowledge, then our job is just to wake ourselves up and then try to embrace other people and wake them up too and uh, see what communities get developed from that. You know? And that's what we're doing here in America, I believe. I believe that as we live our life journey here in America, we affect people all over the world because people watch this country with a great light. You know, we are a great light to the world. And people follow us. You know? And I know it for a fact because when I talk to brothers from Ghana, I talk to sisters from Ghana, from Ethiopia, different places, they always say things like, when we grew up, 
you know, they told us, find your people in America. They're, they're, they've been exposed to the most. They can help you. Go to America and find them if you can. She said, mm -hmm. she said in the most, they said, and they tell me, they say, the most <clears throat> um, unnatural thing is, is when we get here, we're we treated we as, we don't embrace right, it. Right, we're treated as foreigners by our own people, which is you guys. And then the real foreigners say, you don't have to worry about them because they're already indoctrinated. Let's just get together. You know, you could be our professor. You could be our, you know. You can teach us. Yeah, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And, and uh, he said, so for survival, we end up teaching them what we should be sharing amongst ourselves. And then you guys could teach us what you know about this country. Because this country is one of the greatest countries on the earth. And just the economics and the empowerment, uh, the structure, the free enterprise, all the stuff that exists. You know, because the only freedom you get in America is economic freedom. Everything else is is brain thing, you know what I'm saying? And you have to decide, you know, how you what, what freedom you want, you know, and how you want to interact. Yeah. And I thank you for allowing us to come into the listening room over here at Hendrick Turner Jr. and the Flavor mm -hmm. Band, yeah. uh, who, who does it, how, how often y'all live? Three nights a week. We have Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then the rest of the days, we're doing film production and all kind of different stuff in here. This, this place houses a lot of different projects and a lot of different people. You got a lot going on. Yeah. And next time I come in, you're going to have Kevin, Brother Kevin over here. Oh, absolutely. Immersed in, in, in the Well, he's got a story. Program. He's got a story, and we got we to talk about that, and that's one all of the right, things man, right. that we need to do. Yeah, that, that, that's one of the things we're going to get done there. Absolutely. So uh, I'd like to thank you for having a count time here today. Thank you for giving us your precious time. Brother, I, 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 I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity, you know, because, uh, you know, like I say, I, I value, um, you know, your situation and who you are and all that you brought to the community. And, and it's a pleasure to be able to do this. I mean that. You know, it's that, awesome. That, that means I appreciate yeah. that, little brother. Thank you. Yeah, oh, no for problem. For those encouraging no words. And Henry Turner, Jr., community leader, a community activist. All that you can think about, this brother have always been involved, want to make it, not want to, he's making a difference. And we continue, we wish you a lot, continued success, doing what you're doing. And the Soul Food Festival is when? May 18th, 20th, and 21st. All right, all right. Bring so y'all get ready for the Soul Food Festival, May the 19th, 18th, 18th, 20th, 20th, and 21st. 21st. Downtown Baton Rouge, That's where? Right. At, uh, at the uh, Riverfront Plaza. Ask y'all to come on out. Support it if they want to get in contact with you, to, to, if they want to be a vendor or something, how to get in contact with you. BRSoulFoodFest.com. All the information is there. They can punch the vendor, uh, click the vendor knob, and everything will show up. They can uh, look at the prices and the sizes and all of that stuff. Okay. So BRSoulFoodFest.com. BR then my telephone number, if somebody wanted to really reach me quickly, would be 225 802 9681. And I can walk them through the process if they need it. All right, then. You got all the information all right. out. Anything else? For, That's it, man. Thank, thank you very you much. And welcome man. to Countdown. Thank you for giving us all your right. time, my Pleasure brother. Pleasure to be on Countdown. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Countdown Podcast.